greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Strange Places podcast. I am your tour guide to the uh, surreal, the strange, the macabre, the unsolved. Billy Dean Shoemate III. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and DistroKid. So thanks for coming back. This podcast is doing eerily well. I'm beside myself, truly, big time. To the listeners, the patrons who have stuck around this fucking long, it's just, it's it's amazing. Strange Places is doing better than I ever could have hoped for, and I really do appreciate your listenership. I, I truly do. Uh, you know, sometimes when you're sitting here doing this at, uh, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning in an empty bedroom, you're like, okay, how is, <laughs> uh, how is my delivery? How is my research? Am I doing the right topics? There's a million things that are going through your head, you know. I'm not saying you second guess yourself. It's just that you try to make the show as good as you possibly can. And when, you you know, you see a payoff like this, it's just, um, it's amazing. And I'm really glad that this show is as liked as it is. Pretty amazing. So today, where are we going? I'm thinking we should take a little trip to Hollywood. There was a lot of things that I was going to do, uh, uh, this week's episode on, but then I stumbled on something, and this is kind of a, uh, uh, I guess <laughs> not to sound clickbaity. This is kind of a a top three kind of episode, and once I get to this third one, you'll see why I picked it because that because whatever this third one that we get into of this topic here, which you're well aware of after reading the title, you know. <laughs> haunted, cursed film, haunted and cursed films. See, I, I, at this point of me recording it, I haven't named the episode yet, so it's going to be you know something along those lines. Uh, you guys can guess, obviously, what this episode is going to be about. It, it was going to be about something else, actually, something that we will get to eventually. But I discovered uh, I, something I didn't know uh, as far as haunted or cursed or, you know, uh, cursed films when we get to this third one. And it really, I was like, Ooh, I got to do an episode on this, man. I got to. Well, uh, Hollywood has no share of, of what am I talking about? See, like I said, I'm recording this at six in the morning. Brain is not all that functional. So you have to bear with me. God, I cannot sentence today. Apparently Hollywood is no stranger to mysteries. It has its share, big time. And this isn't the last one that we're going to tackle on Strange Places. No siree. (laughs) Hollywood definitely has its strangeness, its mysteries. L.A. in particular. L.A. has more than you could shake a stick at. You You could dedicate an entire podcast to just strange places in Los Angeles alone. And um, that's not exaggerating. I mean, you really, really can. You can. It's it's um, it it it's amazing, because you know so many people have moved through L.A. with stars in their eyes, dreams in their hearts, and most of those dreams get smashed. It's exceptionally rare that that uh, you know lofty ideal of. Packing up all your stuff, leaving the family farm and going to Los Angeles, you know, is going to be one of those things that that pays off for you and turns into a career and a life. So what I'm getting at 
is that, yes, L.A. is the land of the movie star, the city of angels, all these great things that you want to call it. But it's also a place with a lot of lost hope, a lot of mashed dreams. And that can create a lot of strangeness. Now, what we're going to talk about today, as you can see from the title, there are quite a few films that are believed to be cursed, that are believed to be uh, somehow imbued with a negative supernatural energy. One of the most famous examples, which we're not going to, we're, we're going to go into three of them that I've whittled it down to. I was going to do an episode about just one, the one that I discovered, but I thought, no, this is too interesting a phenomenon to just talk about one. Even though the third one that we're going to talk about is one of the weirdest things I think we've ever discussed on this show, for sure. But uh, there's been movies that have thought to be, have been cursed, but then under further scrutiny or when you really get it under the microscope, you find out that there were circumstances that didn't necessarily make it curse. It could have been just a dangerous environment or what have you. The John Wayne movie, The Conqueror, right? What happens? Half the cast and crew die of cancer because they film it out in the desert where literally nuclear weapons were <laughs> had been tested. The place was extremely radioactive. They found out that you know John Wayne's death, the, de the deaths of uh, most of the cast and crew were caused by the ionizing radiation in the air. So the, the Conqueror, I wouldn't say was a cursed film, just an extremely dangerous one. Uh, what was that one? It's an old film. It's a really old film. I think this movie is pre-Metropolis. I, I should have done my research on this because I knew I was going to mention it. Uh, what was it? It was um, Noah's Ark. There it is. Found it. 1928. An actress and crew members, numerous crew members, are injured and killed on the set of Warner Brothers' Noah's Ark during Michael Curtis's filming of the Great Flood scene. Rumor is that many extras were killed. Even this has never been substantiated. The uh, flood scene, you can see in the film. I mean, they... Uh, it, it was very violently done, not very safe. Uh, they didn't have a lot of regulations on the set. They just kind of fucking willy-nilly did it. And you can see people on the film struggling to get out of the water, people drowning in the movie. And a lot of people, you know, thinking that that film was truly cursed, but, the, you know, it, we find out later that it was... Um, a lot of things were overlooked by the director just to get certain shots that he wanted, created kind of a dangerous set. But these three that we're going to talk about are considered legitimately cursed. Are they? Let's look at them. There's quite a few. Uh, we looked at movies like, when I was doing research for this, you know, I was looking at the Twilight Zone movie, uh, The Conqueror, like I said before. Uh, Noah's Ark was one of them. Um, actually, we mentioned Metropolis just a second ago. That's uh, considered a haunted film by some. The Exorcist was one of them. But just for the sake of uh, just for the sake of time, it's obviously a phenomenon since I found so many. <laughs> I whittled it down to my three favorites. So these aren't the only three. Keep in mind, this is. Uh, something that's attached to a lot of movies. I just thought that these three were the most interesting. Because when I think curse, 
when I yeah, and I think that we've made a very good case on this podcast um, as to curses being real. So that's not the discussion here right now because that's something we've already discussed. Right? Go back and listen to the cursed things episodes, you know, to really listen to that portion of it. But I think we've made a pretty damn good case as far as curses existing, technically. You know, technically what a curse is. And when I when I think curse, when I hear curse, I want to see a bizarre serendipity. I want to see a selectivity of the misfortunes that befell the people involved. You know what I mean? There has to be a certain level of, like I said, selectivity. Only the firstborn dying during the Passover. You know what I'm talking about? Uh it has to just go beyond, oh, a bunch of people had a, you know, a really bad few months on set. Some people this, that, that. No, I want, I want it to be more specific. And these three uh, raise an eyebrow. The first one being probably the most famous of all movie curses, Poltergeist. When you mix a daughter <laughs> who communicates with spirits living inside a TV set, backyard that becomes a swimming pool of muddy skeletons, a wolf beast demon, which was probably my favorite fucking ghost ever on film, scared the shit out of me, still does, that lives in a closet, and Steven Spielberg's pure grade-A genius. You get the perfect formula for blockbuster horror. Released in 1982, the original Poltergeist, directed by Toby Hooper and produced by Spielberg, was an instant success, considered to be a masterpiece of American horror cinema. Now, I'm not going to tell you what the movie is about. I mean, if you don't know that, then you need to leave your cave and watch the damn thing. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, what Throughout the course of the film, they found out that their house sits atop a Native American burial ground. The family in the film, the Freelings, spend their time attempting to retrieve uh, Carol Ann from the place that she is, and all the while stay sane as they get smacked around, terrorized, and ultimately kind of goobered in the bathtub. <laughs> With Poltergeist success came a weird mystique that this classic movie is uh, shrouded in real-life tragedies that some interpret as a curse, an undeniable curse. Four cast members die during and soon after the filming of the series, but it, 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 it gets weird, really weird. <laughs> That's why I picked this one. The majority of the fuel for the alleged curse stems from the deaths of multiple cast members. In total, four died during and soon after the filming of the series. Two of these tragic deaths were highly unexpected and very puzzling, leading many fans, including myself, to speculate on the trilogy's eerie implications. First one, Heather O'Rourke. This is not in order, by the way. We're just going to talk about the four people. Carol Ann Freeling, the young uh, focal point of the entire series, all three films, was played by Heather O'Rourke. She was only six when the first Poltergeist film was released. She captivated audiences with her stark blonde hair, doll-like appearance, big, inquisitive, beautiful eyes. Sadly, she was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease in 1987. The following year, uh, O'Rourke got ill again, and her symptoms were casually attributed to the flu. A day later, she collapsed and suffered a cardiac arrest. After being airlifted to a children's hospital in San Diego, O'Rourke died during an operation to correct a bowel obstruction, and it was later believed that she had been suffering from a congenital intestinal abnormality. 
Uh, this happened while they were filming, during the filming of Poltergeist 3. And a lot of people comment on how Heather O'Rourke looks in the film. She's very puffy, almost kind of bloated looking. And my cousin, uh, Audrey, has Crohn's disease. And there are, when I mean, when you got it bad, when they're really, really working on yes. Some of the medication that they give you causes your face to puff up and your body uh, gets quite emaciated. So you get extremely thin, but your face gets bigger, wider. And that's what uh, Heather O'Rourke looked like. It's really sad to watch because um, I know what the effects of that medication does. And it's, 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 uh, it's terrifying. She does not look well. So that was uh, one of the four. Dominique Dunn. Dominique Dunn, who played the original older sister, Dana Freeling, met an equally tragic and unforeseen fate. 1982. She separated from her partner, John Sweeney. In November of that year, he showed up at Dunn's house pleading for her to take him back. When she refused, Sweeney grabbed Dunn's neck, choked her until she was unconscious, and left her to die in her Hollywood home's driveway. She was uh, Sweeney was... Sentenced to six and a half years in prison, but was released only after three fucking years and seven months for murder. Yeah. The other two cast member deaths, while very unfortunate, were not as unpredictable or mysterious, some say. Julian Beck and the great Will Sampson. In 1983, Mr. Beck had been diagnosed with stomach cancer, which took his life soon after he finished work on the... Second installment. He was the guy uh, who played the priest, you know. The scene you'll never fucking forget. Oh, man. And when he shows up at the house in the rain, remember that? Oh, <laughs> that was creepy, man. He's, oh, that, he did, uh, that, that, that scene fucking bothers me. And he did such a great job. When he's asking to be led in the house, <laughs> gives me the fuck, gives me the willies, man. Oh, that was such a good scene. Very, oh, very well done. Um, the stomach cancer took his life soon after he finished work on that film. The same movie was met with further tragedy after Will Sampson, who played Taylor, the Native American shaman, died after undergoing a heart-lung transplant, which had a, you know, well, I'll tell you straight up, has a very, very slim survival rate. But those weren't the only strange things that happened on the set. Cast deaths were not the only agents of the curses said proliferation, as other peculiar and creepy legends surround the film franchise to this day. Jo Beth Williams, who played the mom, Diane Freeling, in the first two films, claimed that Spielberg insisted on using actual human skeletons as props in an attempt to save money. At the time, I know it sounds weird <laughs> now, but at the time, they actually were cheaper than plastic skeletons. Williams's claim has never been verified, but it persists to this day in the lore surrounding the film's curse. And a lot of other people who were involved with the film are very uh, <laughs> kind of cheeky about it. They they won't. There aren't. They they're not as forthcoming as Diane Freeling about the real bodies used in the film. Finally, in an effort to further creep out everybody, <laughs> Samson, the real life medicine man who passed away due to circumstances mentioned a second ago performed an authentic exorcism, believing that the set was evil. After shooting wrapped up one night, he, he one could only imagine how this made the other cast members feel. But Will Sampson, you know, full-blooded Native American, he 
sensed some kind of something off on the film set, something not quite right. He tried to bless the set. And it was often reported that he was just afraid of working on the film. He said something was attached to it and nobody could convince him otherwise. Really, really, really strange. And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll discuss these. We'll go over these first three first and then we'll kind of dive deeper into them. Or would it be wiser to do them one at a time as we talk about them? I don't know. Think, Billy. We're rolling. Okay. We'll do a Reader's Digest dive in and then at the end, we'll do the big dive ins. <laughs> How's that? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, let's keep this entertaining. Keep this fun to listen to. Let's do all, let's do the three. Okay. And then we'll we'll kind of dive into it. The second film that's on my little list here is The Omen, one of the most haunted film productions ever. A summer came to an end in 1975. Production began on one of the more well-known entries in the horror film canon, a chilling portrayal that depicts the foretold arrival of the Antichrist and the inevitable end times. The Omen came hot off the success of The Exorcist, a frightening, devilish adaptation that had changed the landscape of uh, the horror movies for freaking ever. This one often gets touted above The Exorcist. You'll see The Exorcist and The Omen kind of fight for, you know, the place of the scariest film ever made. In my opinion, uh, you know, The Omen is scarier than The Exorcist, really. Yeah, but, you know, that's just my opinion. The Exorcist has, it, it was a monstrous hit. Huge. To this day, it ranks as one of the top-grossing horror films ever, having earned over $232 million in revenue. It also earned a staggering 10, 10 Academy Award nominations, which included Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Director. With this kind of success, it seemed like The Omen would be a surefire hit, too. Producer Harvey Bernard had counted on that when, when he might not have expected, though was a strange set of occurrences that would string together and earn The Omen, a reputation as one of the most cursed productions ever. Even when The Omen was just an idea floating around the Hollywood stratosphere, Bernhard had received a grave warning, actually. According to the Los Angeles Times, an advertising executive named Bob Munger, it's hard to say for some reason today, Bob Munger, had approached him with an idea involving the Antichrist. Munger pitched the concept with caution. Bernard said he warned us that he thought the devil did not want us to make this picture. In later interviews, both Munger and Bernard recalled how they predicted the curse in these early moments. Munger recalls his words of warning. I said, if you make this movie, you're going to have some problems. If the devil's greatest single weapon is to be invisible and you're going to do something which is going to take away his invisibility to millions of people, he's not going to like that. Bernard recalled, the devil was at work and he didn't want that film made. Maybe. The trouble ignited, this is, uh, this is a weird one. The trouble ignited before the film even started production. The perceived catalyst was the tragic suicide of lead actor Gregory Peck's son, who shot himself in the head in June of 1975, two months before the first days on set. When Peck flew to London uh, for the role, his plane was struck by fucking lightning. A few weeks later, executive Mark Newfield boarded a flight from L.A. His plane was also struck by lightning, and he referred to the experience as the roughest five minutes I ever had on an airliner. In fact, the roughest five minutes I've ever had as a human being on this earth. Still production on The Omen kind of lurched forward. Bernard, uh, 
he started wearing a cross on set. He was that kind of freaked. At one point, the team had hired a small plane for a, a little bit of aerial filming, but the vessel was switched over to another client at the last minute. The plane reportedly crashed on takeoff, killing everybody on board. More ominous circumstances seemed to plague the production. Newfield, whose plane had already been fucking struck by lightning, was staying at the London Hilton with his wife. The building was bombed by the Irish Republican Army in September of that year. As filming rolled on, so did more and more disasters. Yeah, we're, we're keeping, we're still going. One particularly chilling zoo scene had a group of wild baboons reacting violently to Damien's presence. According to director Richard Donner, or Dick Donner, whichever, <laughs> uh, he's the guy that directed The Goonies, actually, and Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. He's been, he's been around. He directed Superman. This guy's a heavyweight. Damien's mother, played by actress Lee Remick, was legitimately terrified while filming this sequence. For the safety of the cast and crew, an animal trainer had been uh, brought on to deal with the baboons involved in the scene. He was killed the day after they shot there. Okay, but this is what Bernard said. The trainer was killed the day after we shot there. He was killed by a tiger. He grabbed him by the head and killed the man instantly. The day after. Even after the film was finished... The curse kind of lived on, uh, following those involved with it and inflicting them with unspeakable tragedy. The film's initial release was obvious, June 6, 1976, or 6676. In August of that year, a special effects genius named John Richardson got in a terrible car accident. He was in the Netherlands working on Richard Attenborough's A Bridge Too Far. In terms of The Omen, Richardson had executed a particularly gruesome decapitation scene, which if you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Richard had uh, survived his accident, actually, in Holland, but his passenger, assistant Liz Moore, hadn't been so fortunate. She had been beheaded. According to local reports, a sign in the vicinity clocked the distance to a nearby town, Omnin, 66.6 kilometers. Yeah. Isn't that weird? A sign right next to the accident scene was right there. You could see it in some of the photos, actually. Omnin, 66.6 kilometers. Weird. One of the film stuntmen, uh, Alf Joint, also went to work on a bridge too far. He wound up in the hospital after one of his stunts went very, very wrong. In one sequence, he was simply meant to jump from the roof to an airbag, but he didn't seem to fall abruptly and strangely. When he woke up in the hospital, he claimed he was pushed. And what became of Harvey Stevens, the young boy portrayed who portrayed Damien? He seemed to have completely vanished. Back in 2001, AMC premiered a 90-minute documentary called The Omen Legacy, the piece rehashed many of the aforementioned stories and included interviews with the original cast and crew. Stevens, nowhere to be found. I saw him nine years ago, Bernard said at the time. He was handsome and a wonderful boy. He was tall and he was rather beautiful. It was the only picture he ever made. Kevin Burns, an executive producer for the special, even went as far as to hire a private investigator to get a hold of the former actor. I'm sure he's still around out there. We really tried to find him. He's not missing, by the way. In fact, he actually returned to acting in 2006, right back to where his career started. He played a small role in the remake of The Yeoman, which starred Julia Stiles and Liv Schreiber and was released on 6606, remember? 
As far as we know, nothing out of the ordinary happened during the production of the reboot. The quietude begs the question, of course. Is the curse of the omen real? Was it all coincidence or just a case of bad luck? I suppose only the devil himself knows, right? Another one that we're looking at, the one that I said I kind of stumbled upon, discovered, the one that made me want to do this episode in the first place. I did not know about this one. And it legitimately freaked me out. And so if you don't know about this one either, we're, we're going to learn some shit. This is a movie called A Tuck, or a screenplay, because the movie never got made, and probably never will. But it still counts, and I'll tell you why. Facts and theories about A Tuck, A Tuck, A Tuck, A-T-U-K, still can't pronounce that. Let's call it, a, let's just call it A Tuck. It's a cursed script that supposedly killed every single actor that was attached to it. Now, this is going to open your eyes a bit, man. This raised an eyebrow, for sure. Really, this one freaked me out. Cursed movies exist. Some people say, a lot of people say, especially after this one, though few of these scripts tend to capture interest quite like a tuck. Ask anyone who's been in the business. They'll likely have some insane a tuck stories, more than likely. The unproduced screenplay had been floating around Hollywood since the early 70s. Tells a fish-out-of-water story of an Eskimo in New York City, adapted from Mordecai Rickler's 1963 novel The Incomparable A Tuck. Norman Jewison purchased the rights to the book in 1971. Screenwriter Todd Carroll uh, pumped out a draft, but it has yet to be filmed. That's not for lack of trying. It's just that, according to some theories, the script fells any actor that expresses interest in the role. And, oh man, wait till we get into this. Like I said, I didn't know about this one. And it intrigued me enough to dedicate you know, an episode <laughs> around it. Carol himself was waved off any talk of a curse, but the creepy coincidences surrounding a tuck, most notably the connection between an actor's involvement with the script and their passing, has been compelling enough for film buffs and everyone else that knows about it to take a huge interest. As such, it's become one of the most infamous unproduced screenplays in Hollywood history and a piece of lore that shines a light on the dark side of Hollywood. And a tuck, still out there. United Artists retains the rights to this day. You can even read it online. But you might want to read the following before you crack open those dusty digital pages. As this behind-the-scenes Hollywood drama reveals that we're going to get into, <laughs> some stories are best left untold. Some scripts are probably better left under lock and key. Who was the first actor considered for the lead? John Belushi. Atuck was written with just one actor in mind, Saturday Night Live Animal House and Blues Brothers star John Belushi. Belushi was apparently quite taken with the role. This must have been exciting for producer Norman Jewison, who'd been looking for a star with the clout of Belushi for almost 10 years. Just a few months later, though, Belushi was found dead at the Chateau Marmot Hotel in Hollywood. His passing was uh, initially ruled an accident, uh, accidental overdose, though his friend Catherine Evelyn Smith was eventually charged in the incident. Who looked at the role next? Well, Belushi's passing didn't halt a tuck for long. By 1988, production resumed with brash comedian, you know his name, Sam Kinison, set to play a tuck. 
Some sources say the notoriously prickly Kinnison never even read the script before taking the role and arrived on set with rewrites in hand, while other people say his manager promised him creative control without clearing it with the damn studio. Regardless, everyone seems to agree that footage was shot with Kinnison. He actually got further than Belushi did. In full costume. But production halted after just eight days. Why? United Artists, the studio behind Atuck, sued Kinnison for threatening to give an intentionally bad performance as his manager soon left. Only a few years later, Kinnison also lost his life in a head-on collision. Well, Belushi didn't die of a collision, but you know what I mean. On California U.S.'s Route 95, sources who were there say uh, they tell a very chilling story, saying that before he passed, he seemed to carry on a conversation with someone who was not there. I don't want to go. I don't want to go, he reportedly said before pausing and listening closely to a voice no one could hear. He asked, but why? And after listening again, quietly muttered, okay, nodding and saying okay three more times before his passing. Bizarre. Next person considered for the role. I'm not done. In 1994, just two years after the passing of Kinnison, character actor extraordinaire John Candy was approached to take the lead in Atuck. Candy apparently expressed interest, but a heart attack claimed his life before he could pull the trigger on it. It's widely known that John Candy was in very poor health when he passed, but what prompts many to credit the Atuck curse for his passing is that just a few months later, Candy's friend and screenwriter Michael O'Donoghue uh, was felled unexpectedly of, of a cerebral hemorrhage. O'Donoghue, according to various accounts, had neither given the script to Candy or read it along with him. So this is one of those things where just having the damn screenplay on him might have caused something. Are we done with the actors? Have you freaked out yet? Nope, we still got more. Chris Farley was next in line for the role of Atuck. I'm not fucking with you. Apparently unfazed by whispers of a curse something that he actually laughed at and joked with his friends about. Farley was vocal about his excitement for the script, and some say he was on the verge of accepting the role before he passed in 1997. It was reminiscent, uh, reminiscent of Belushi's demise, as an OD in Chicago's John Hancock Center claimed the funny man's life, one of the greatest comedians of all time. Now, oh wait, y'all, we're not done. I got one more. <laughs> the connection is... Uh, uh, considered unverified, but we have evidence. Several sources claim that Chris Farley shared a tuck with a another comedian, a guy named Phil Hartman. Yeah, Hartman tragically was slain by his own wife just months after Farley's passing. Reportedly, Hartman wasn't up for the a tuck role, but for a supporting part in the film. And, uh, oh, well, well, sorry, I, I was going to carry on, but uh, I got another one. <laughs> I, I'm, this is, I know, it's weird. It's weird. One of my favorite actors of all time. A guy that I miss sorely, sorely, sorely miss. A guy that I think about and just puts a smile on my face. A, an actor that I, that I really, really miss. My man, my spirit animal. John Ritter was another one who was looking at a supporting part in the film now this is this is worse than the 27 club i'm serious man this that is weird when discussing the atuck phenomenon some reference book curses 
Now, what a book curse is, is it was popular in medieval times. Book curses inflicted utter ruin on anyone who stole an important tome or document from its intended owner. Considering John Belushi, the ostensible original owner of Atuck, passed before making the film, could you know, could the curse of Atuck be a book curse? The role was written specifically for him after all. Now, Atuck isn't the only allegedly cursed screenplay. Chris Farley, John Candy, John Belushi, uh, what, uh, they all have something in common, right? They were all considered for the role of Ignatius J. Riley, the boisterous main character. Oh, it, yeah, the, another script. Uh, uh, well, I'm looking at this here. Chris Farley, John Candy, Belushi. Chris Farley, too. Oh, I did mention him. John Candy, Belushi. I don't see Kinnison. Kinnison is on there. Yep, Sam Kinnison. What the hell? I didn't see this earlier. They were all considered for the role of Ignatius J. Riley, the boisterous main character of A Confederacy of Dunces. The screenplay adapted from John Kennedy's Tools Pulitzer Prize winning novel had been in development since 1980. As in the case of Atuck, the project remains on the shelf. The, I got to admit, that one, that one uh, got under my skin a little bit. That's too bizarre, isn't it? So now, now that we're looking at this, so I think we have established on this podcast that curses are indeed a thing. Now, what made these curses filmed? Uh, uh, these curses filmed? <laughs> what made these <laughs> films cursed? Wow. Either too much coffee or not enough. What made these films cursed? Was it Steven Spielberg using actual human skeletons during the making of Poltergeist? Did it uh, stir something up when Will Sampson tried to bless the set? He said, you know, he obviously blessed it for a reason. He felt that there was something very dark and very evil lurking around. Then we get into weirder territory, the omen. Um, was the omen cursed? I don't know, but uh, I, <laughs> I would not make a film that tackled that kind of subject matter, right? Uh, it's just, I, I I don't know if I would use the word taboo. Maybe I just can't think of a word, but uh, that's just maybe the devil, right? It's just something maybe you shouldn't fuck with. Because uh, the, omen, uh, the omen, the exorcist had a, uh, some similar circumstances going on there. The Conjuring, the exorcism of Emily Rose. I mean, I, I ran into all these films that are supposedly cursed before I settled on these three. There's a lot more than Poltergeist, The Omen, and Atuck. A lot more. But uh, messing with demonic forces like that, right? Uh, somebody saying, I believe in my heart of hearts, the devil does not want this movie made. Then why'd you fucking make it, right? You're kind of inviting that kind of stuff in. I'm a Christian. Does the devil exist? Yes. Yes, he does. I do firmly believe that he does. And in the Bible, I'm not trying to push anything on you. I'm just telling you uh, what what my beliefs are and what my doctrine states, right? I'm not trying to sell you on nothing. I love you all, regardless of your um, religious beliefs. As far as, you know, what my religious beliefs state is that Satan is the god of the world. <clears throat> he has the ability to create dark, uh, great signs and wonders to sway people away from God. He has been basically given the authority to do this to test mankind. Now listen to those words, very specific words, to create great signs and wonders to sway people from God. 
So a being this uh, powerful, uh, yeah, that's something I just would not want to play with at all. Is that what caused the curse of the yeoman? Possibly. Now Atuk, one that really gets to me. Um, yeah, that freaked me out when I read it. It just kept going on and on and on, didn't it? It was weird. But then I look at, um, aside from... Aside from Phil Hartman and, and John Candy's buddy, what was similar with all these actors that they were looking at? Is this truly a curse, or are we looking at something else here? We're looking at guys who lived fast and hard. Uh, John Candy a little bit, not as much, but guys who were, uh, guys who were overweight. Extremely overweight, but known to be very, <laughs> uh, very energetic, overweight people, um, poisoning their bodies with either, uh, you know, too much food, the smoking, the alcohol, the drugs in a lot of their cases. Uh, Sam Kennison, you know, being one of them, I know it was a car accident and he had just recently gotten clean, but you're dealing with guys who were living very fast. You know, John Ritter, and there, there are going to be exceptions. John Ritter was definitely not one of those guys. But the main role for Atuk was needing somebody very Belushi-like, wild, crazy, you know, a little bulbous, overweight, you know. That's why they wanted guys like Chris Farley, Sam Kinison. And just looking from a health standpoint, I'm a big guy. Right. I, I am. I'm a large mammal. <laughs> you know, I was myself um, had issues with drugs in my past. I've been clean since April of 2006. And um, when you're. I, I, who was it? I think it was actually Phil Hartman himself that put it the best. No, no, no. Actually, it was Tom Arnold. He was talking about uh, Chris Farley. It was some, I think it was on Howard Stern show. He was talking about Chris Farley. And he said one of the most brilliant things that I've heard regarding this. Tom Arnold said, you can't be that overweight and be a drug addict. That, that, that is spelling complete and utter doom. You need to pick one. Either be overweight or be a drug addict. If you're both, then you are a walking time bomb. And that's what these guys were. Belushi, Chris Farley, I'm not making fun of their weight because I'm fucking fat. Why would I make fun of them? Their lifestyle choices, all that, they were, you know, extremely unhealthy on top of it. Being overweight is unfucking healthy And as energetic, as crazy energetic as these guys were, Sam Kennison, you know, even him too. They were just, rem I don't know where the fuck they got this energy from. <laughs> and I don't know how Chris Farley was able to physically do some of the things he could do as big as he was doing fucking cartwheels and shit. You know, remember? <laughs> he was so physically limber for his size. It was amazing. John Belushi the same way. But you can't do things like that to your body and be that overweight. It's a recipe for disaster. I know this because I'm overweight. And uh, it's just, it's really hard on your body. And Atuk was looking for a certain kind of actor to do this. Is it any surprise that uh, a, that these actors that they had for Atuk all died? Um, very, you know, very big, very unhealthy men. That every actor who has gotten this has passed. Uh, is it, It's kind of like saying, oh, is every, you know large actor who kind of is known for living it up 
you know, <laughs> uh, are they all guaranteed to die before a tuck is made? Well, nobody can answer that. Right. I'm just saying, I'm just talking about it from a health perspective. Um, maybe this isn't a curse thing, you know, maybe, uh, a tuck is just a reminder to us all that you need to take care of yourself. Um, Poltergeist may be just a reminder to all of us that human life is sacred. And even you might be detached feeling that this was a human being, detached from feeling, hey, this was a person with a life, a person with feelings, a person with thoughts, with a family. Now that that, you know, that person is dead and it's just a skeleton, you might feel a sense of detachment there. But what Poltergeist may have taught us is that human life is sacred. And the human body, no matter what the remains are, are not a fucking prop. What the omen taught us was there are forces out there that we should just not fuck with. And at the end of the day, is that really what a curse is? Yeah. I would say, are these films cursed in a way? Definitely. Doesn't mean every film is cursed. We found out that, you know, like The Conqueror, we found out that the entire cast and crew ends up getting fucking cancer because, you know, they film it where they uh, tested nuclear bombs. That's what got John Wayne. That's what got a lot of them. A freak accident, dangerous set. Does that mean it's cursed? I don't know. What's your definition of a curse, right? <laughs> it kind of depends on what your definition is. A lot of people would say The Conqueror, even knowing that this had happened, is a cursed movie set. Even though it was caused by something that we can explain scientifically, radioactive material floating around the air, right? Is it cursed in a sense? Uh, well, I wouldn't want to be on that set. <laughs> and it affected a very large number of people, but I don't want a loose definition here. I want to use curse in the most um, specific way possible. We'll say curse is a supernatural uh, or otherworldly uh, stamp on a certain product or event or place or thing that is uncannily eerie, that we have to look at it and conclude there's definitely something supernatural going on here. Like I said earlier, selectivity. Um, <laughs> these three are definitely some pretty hair-raising questions. The ATUC in particular is strange, the, the strangest one. I think we're going to, I mean, as you can imagine, I know we're getting a little bit longer here on this episode than normal, but hear me out real quick before we go. You know that, uh, thinking about this, right, we're going to get to the point on the Strange Places podcast where we're not going to be able to say, hey, this is uh, legit, hey, this is debunked, hey, this merits more study, because we're going to start getting through all of these really well-known and famous strange places. We're going to get to things that we, eventually, we're going to get to things on this podcast that nobody has evidence for, right? And we're going to get into people wanting to share you know, their own stories and stuff like that. I can't debunk or prove something that... Uh, you know, isn't one of the big, major, famous ones where you have evidence laying around everywhere. So I'm telling you, going forward, we'll do it when we can. It's 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 it can't be a thing every episode anymore where we say that you know the the verdict right because a lot of these things we have no evidence for. 
And I can't force that, you know, that verdict on all of them. So we're not going to give one to this whole movie curse thing. I think it's really interesting. I think it's definitely possible, but it shouldn't be lumped in as one phenomenon. I think every movie should be tackled uh, individually. I think every movie should be tackled on its own. Is this thing cursed? Is uh, uh, What's another example? Is The Wizard of Oz a cursed film? Is The Poltergeist a cursed film? Omen, The Exorcist. Uh, the Sixth Sense, actually, a lot of people said. The Exorcism of em- Emily Rose. Uh, uh, one of the Night Shyamalan films, A Lady in the Water, I think. A lot of weird shit happened on that set. Should we all lump it in and say movies are cursed things? No. They should be tackled, tackled on an individual basis. The reason I chose The Poltergeist, The Yeoman, and uh, Atuk was because these <laughs> these three examples really, really make me wonder. But if you absolutely want your verdict at the end, obviously this is something that requires much further study. I'm not going to debunk... There's a a couple of films. Okay, as far as like movies being cursed, the, the art of cinema, a film is a cursed thing. Debunked. Completely debunked. That is bullshit. Because uh, not every film is cursed. <laughs> a lot of people have had glorious times on the set, right? Back to the Future is not a cursed film. Santa Claus versus the Martians is not a cursed film, right? <laughs> Nosferatu is not a cursed film. Driving Miss Daisy is not a cursed film, you know? <laughs> Pink Flamingos, not a cursed film. Some of the footage looks a little uh, not really uh, up my alley. Right. But not every film is like this. So we can completely throw that out the window. Cinema, a movie, is not a cursed thing. Are there cursed films out there? I'll leave that to you. What's my opinion? In the true sense of curse, I do think that there are some legitimate ones. I don't have evidence, so I cannot say these things are legit 100%. The Omen being one of them. Poltergeist being one of them. Atuk, you bet. Yeah, actually, <laughs> I'm going to change my mind on uh, on Atuk. Like I said, I know we're going over, but I'm having fun here. <laughs> we'll make this a special episode. How's that? Atuk, uh, I'm not going to lump in with a, films that I consider cursed. I, I, really, I really do think I explained it. Because they're looking for a certain kind of actor. Right. They've been looking for a certain kind of actor from day one. And unfortunately, the quote unquote kind of actor that they're looking for is an an unhealthy, fast living time bomb. Now, the other people outside of that, John Ritter, um, what were the other people? Uh, uh, John Candy's buddy, Michael O'Donohue, John Ritter, Phil Hartman, they, you know, they had nothing to do with it. But and the list of actors, uh, I you know, actually goes further than that. I just mentioned the famous ones. <laughs> That's because they did want, you know, smaller kind of no-name actors, thinking that that would kind of dispel whatever what was going on. I do think that Atuk has a genuine explanation, especially after after really diving into it and talking about it. They were just looking for a specific kind of person. That specific kind of person um, is 
prone, especially in Hollywood, to really not live all that long. So I'm not kind of I'm not surprised about ATUC. It's very shocking to read. It'll knock you on your ass when you first really look into it. It'll freak you out. But the more you sit on it, and the more you think about it, uh, the the less cursed it seems. But that's the thing. Common sense is something that's lacking in the paranormal and supernatural study these days. It's never used. People want so bad for the thing to be the thing, and they'll overlook the glaringly obvious. I think ATUC can be explained. It's weird, but <laughs> and it's fun to talk about. But I'm not going to stretch things just to fit my desired narrative. So what do you guys think about movie curses? Did I miss out on one? Do you think movies as a whole are a cursed thing? Are there any movies that you want to discuss? Are there any that you think I should develop? I, I should. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> I cannot speak. That I should dedicate. Wow, a whole podcast to. Let me know. Go on asylum817.com. That's asylum817.com. For all things Strange Places related, all the social media links are there, as well as a link to get to our Patreon account, where you can get everything from bonus episodes, uh, bonus content, giveaways at certain tiers, all kinds of stuff. A little less a dollar a month, you'll be helping me out tremendously. Shout out to the patrons, by the way. The Kunkel Homestead YouTube channel, Donald Haynes, David Peterson. I really appreciate you guys. If you're one of those, I need a guy got to go directly there. Instead of clicking links, go to a patreon.com slash asylum 817. Patreon.com slash asylum 817. So anyway, guys, I will catch you later. Have a good one. Thanks for listening again. I appreciate you. I love you all. And uh, yeah, hope you had fun with this one as much as I did. We went over, but damn it, I was just, uh, I was having a blast. I'll catch you guys later, all right? Are we ever going to run out of strange places? Uh, I don't think so. Because every town has a strange place, and maybe one day, we'll visit yours. The Strange Places podcast is brought to you by DistroKid. DistroKid is a music label for truly independent artists. They will distribute and share your music on every streaming platform the internet has to offer. And the best part is that you keep all of your royalties. In fact, DistroKid has made history, marking the first time that an artist on the charts made 100% of their earnings. This is the music industry's worst nightmare, giving indie artists complete control over their art. For only 20 bucks a year, you can upload unlimited music, and with the split feature, you can split a percentage of the earnings to your bandmates. If you click the affiliate link in this episode's description, you get 7% off the first year. But did I mention that after that, it's only 20 bucks a freaking year? I've been a musician for a long time. My music is heard all over the world, and yours should be too. Click the link in this episode's description to not only support Strange Places, but put control of your own music back into your hands. No contracts, no hidden clauses, no lovely coin men in their lovely, lovely suits. Thanks to DistroKid for being a sponsor and giving this old dog an audience.